Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, Season 15, Episode 22. We actually haven't recorded many of these together of late, and it's been mostly Cam and myself and you and Barat, but we're back together for the first time in a while, in a huge week in especially Test Cricket, the two remarkable results at Brisbane and Hyderabad. We'll get a chance to review that. Now, South Africa's women knocking off Australia, which is absolutely not for nothing. Big Bash finals, ICC awards. Imran Khan's been sent to jail the final word 11's won another game. Uh, there's quite a bit here this week, Jeff. Hello. Hello. Yes, I feel like I, I barely remember you at this point. It's been all other people. <laughs> Vedishan Hunter-Raj has been in the feed as well. Adam White's been yep. guest hosting. Uh, we've been spreading the love around. And, and normally I would talk about the final word game at Birch Grove first up, but I, I feel that that might be uh, an incorrect order of priorities given <laughs> that we've had two of the great test matches that finished within a couple of hours of each other uh, on late Sunday evening. And in terms of things just happening as well, the Imran Khan news has broken like an hour before we've recorded. So I think it would be, mm. um, it would be, uh, it, would, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to try and talk to that other than to say that according to reports on the basis of leaking secrets, he's been imprisoned. So that's quite a significant thing, not relating to cricket per se, but a great of the game. So I think we need to do a proper episode on that, Jeff. Yeah, so that we'll we'll look at doing that in the next week or two to, to figure out what's actually going on in that part of the world. But um, a 10-year sentence is what we're initially hearing. I don't know if that's a, a maximum or a minimum or what wiggle room there is or, or if it's going to be golf club, country jail, or but there's, there's a fair bit mm. going on in, in terms of the political manoeuvrings and the different motivations at play in Pakistan. I should say that this program is ever is brought to you by Seabus Super, our great mates. You'll hear more about them later. Okay, well, the two test matches, we, we have already both said a lot of words about the respective finishes, but as ever with uh, close finishes, there tends to be quite a few storylines that flow out afterwards. So with all that said, I reckon we should go back to Brisbane, Jeff, to start our um, chat today and the response to all of that, which, you know, when there's a, a close result or when Australia lose at home, there's always a little bit of a blow up. But I was, I was a little bit surprised about the criticism of Cummins and I suppose the, the, the framework of the week around Australia Day and so on was that he was going to be a lightning rod if they happened to lose this test match. But his mm. comments around believing it was a great thing for world cricket that the Windies had found a way to win and so on, I just thought that was like quite gracious and in context and so on. But it was met with a fair bit of resistance from not just the usual suspects either, but like from credible people who said that they didn't like or appreciate that Cummins was speaking that way, effect- effectively saying you should have been hurting more. But I don't know, to my way of thinking, there's not an mm. awful lot you can do about it once the game's over and, and, and doing that post-match press conference with the bigger picture in mind felt pretty reasonable to me. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a, a couple of things I've noticed from observing Pat Cummins in, in victory and defeat the last few years, um, and it, it's that he doesn't imbue a huge amount of emotion into it either way. Mm. He didn't come out after the World Cup final and say, oh, my God, that's the biggest moment in my life and what an incredible thing. He, he said things like, oh, it's very satisfying to, you know, to, to come away with a win. He's very understated with stuff like that. And similarly, when they lose, he, he doesn't go out and do the chest thumping like, oh, we're all in agony and we're, we're you know, I mean, gutted is the favourite word they like to use in England. We're all <laughs> shredded and in pieces in the dressing room because we lost a test match. He tries to be pretty level about it and say, yep, okay, it's disappointing and here are the things that uh, that we haven't done well and here's what we, we're going to try to do better and we'll 
will tackle the next game. So he doesn't blow it out of proportion one way or the other. And so it, it wasn't a major part of what he said after the game. He, he said, you know, basically that they wanted to win and they did their best to win and that as a Test cricket fan, he could see that it was a good thing for the game to, to have results that you don't expect. So mm-hmm. it was a pretty mild sort of line, which as lines tend to do that have anything in them that's out of the usual, they get blown up and put into headlines on the back of the paper and, and then people go from there. They were pretty big before the summer started, Jeff, about winning all five and advancing their position in the World Test Championship table, which is done on sort of match ratio percentage now, not done on raw mm. points. And I mean, they've achieved that. Even with four wins and one loss, they're up to 60%. Um, there are three teams on 50%. I think in second equal second. So that objective's been met that they're in a good position as they go to New Zealand and try and qualify first or second for that. Again, um, a bit different for the Windies though. I mean, they're down in seventh or eighth and they won't make that final. But in a way, it's sad that they have three high profile test matches in England. That's fantastic. They're in July. But after that, you have to wait till November when they play twice at home against Bangladesh and then January for two tests away against Pakistan. And, you know, that's their lot in this whole World Test Championship cycle. We said similar things when Pakistan were in Australia last month that after this centre point or focal point, and this was only two test matches as well, by the way, which goes to our, you know, wider ongoing frustration at two test series and not having the decider. But, yeah, there's so much goodwill. It's a shame that Mm. even accounting for the England series, which will draw a lot of eyeballs, that they're not playing an awful lot between now and the end of the World Test Championship cycle. And imagine how spicy it might have been if if they had been playing a third test, you know, yeah. if, if after this uh, absolutely epochal performance there'd been a, a, a third game to come. I mean, there would have been so much interest leading into it. it. It was it was really heartening to see how much interest there was in the result on Sunday that, you know, people who weren't quite paying attention were suddenly fixated on what was happening in that game and, mm. and it, was, it was a huge story um, which – a normal Australian win wouldn't have been, you know, if, if they'd run down that total three wickets down, yeah. as they've done in most of the games that they've played against West Indies. I mean, I was looking at this, the, the numbers on this today. This this century, so since since 2000, West Indies and Australia have played, before Brisbane, they'd played 29 times. West Indies had won once out of 29 test matches this century. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary disproportionality in the records between these teams. And and this current side, particularly in terms of the batting, is is probably the weakest they've ever turned out. You know, the, the least qualified, certainly, the, the least experienced. All of those sides that got roundly beaten across various series still had some pretty credible players in them at different times, whereas... You know this this batting lineup has very little aside from Craig Brathwaite, who's been around forever and a day. So you know the the fact that they were able to cobble together enough runs in the third innings to give themselves something to bowl at, and then to produce that performance. You know, I, I, the high of this might have been too much for them to come back and do something similar in a third Test mm. match had there been one. But who knows? Nice piece from Mike Atherton in the Times last night about the England press pack and all the journos in the press box at Hyderabad, despite how tense that game was, huddled around a computer screen watching the end of the the test at Brisbane. And what's that old news expression? Like, man bites dog isn't a story. Uh, Sorry, dog Mm. bites man isn't a story. Man bites dog is a story. And this was a sort of a man bites dog moment, if you will, uh, as far as the novelty factor. Because you're right, Australia run that down three or four or even seven down, it's, it's interesting. The Windies have done commendably, mm. but there's no outpouring of emotion, which we saw so magnificently across the various broadcasts and with the playing side. And hearing mm. from Shamar Joseph as well in, in the post-match interview saying that he'll always prioritise test cricket now above the money that's likely to come his way 
through T20 cricket. We'll see whether that's possible in practice. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't blame him if he went to make more money in T20 leagues due to the economics of global cricket. But I love that his starting point is I want to keep representing the West Indies in, in this traditional mm. format of the game. He did pull out of the ILT20 overnight. He had a deal there, but due to the broken toe, he can't do that. He has picked up a deal in the PSL, but none of that will compromise his ability to play for the West Indies because, as I mentioned before, their next uh, their next engagement in the Whites is not until July. Yep. Yeah, that's the thing is is that it's a, in some ways that's an easier commitment to make in his position because of the unfortunate fact that they do play so little test cricket. And, and if they were playing a lot more test cricket, he'd be on a bigger contract and so on and it would be more possible. So it can, it can work out pretty well. Um, but yeah, he's already had the first taste of of being cost financially because the injury he picks up in a test match is what keeps him out of the the UAE league where he would have cashed a pretty good check, even though presumably they signed him up before his test heroics. And so Mm. I I think he'd be attracting a fairly substantially higher price post ILT20. Maybe his toe will be feeling better in a week or so and he can sign a new contract, (laughs) The fact revised contract. He's just genuinely quick and that's exciting, right? Yeah. And fast bowlers command so much money in in the T20 market. Another fast bowler from yesteryear uh, somehow got shoehorned into the discourse, if you like, Rodney Hogg, which I just thought was the funniest plot twist in all of that, that of all the people Craig Brathwaite could have cited uh, as having written off the Indies. I know Hogg was fairly strident in what he was saying about um, the side when they- Of course he was. Because um, that's just the way, you know, he's hardwired. But Rod Hogg, who is, uh, you know, well, well, let's let's not do a character assassination there. But I found that uh, pretty funny. There was also a bloke on Twitter who was getting stuck into you, Jeff, saying, eat every one of your words, eat all of your words that you were observing that the West Indies are a, a country that plays international cricket but doesn't have the financial heft of others. Um, you, mm. you, you know, you, you're in disgrace, Jeff, because the Windies won at Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently, apparently, citing structural disadvantage um, and explaining how that works is all of that vanishes when they win a test match. It's now all gone away. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I wasn't expecting to hear Rodney Hogg being the name coming out of Craig Brathwaite's mouth either. Um, I mean, <laughs> up up there in the top tier of renter quotes in in Australian media, <laughs> has, has to get stuck into anybody at any time in order to to, to get a few extracts in the papers. But oh, it just it did surprise me. I was like, are you that's that's who you've been paying attention to. Like that's what's really riled you up. You know, <laughs> imagine. I don't know. It, it, it's there, there were there were other more prominent people who I thought you might have been a little bit more stung by um, than what was coming from that direction. Yeah, it was a big double take for me as well. So over in India, um, we heard from Cam and Vish who did their wrap-up podcast yesterday for us about, um, well, Jadeja uh, and Kale Rahul both missing uh, for the Vizag test mm. match, picking up injuries on the final day. So it's a thigh injury for Jadeja. I think it was a knee for Kale Rahul. They've dropped a fifth on the World Test Championship table, by the way, Jeff, which I'll need to sort of uh, clean it up mm. and... In, in the same way that Australia needed to boss this home summer, for India, if this becomes a real push-pull, and look, it has a potential. This could be like the Ashes was last year. This could be a thrilling series. They seem to follow this England side. I rattled through all of the really close test matches that England have played in over the last 14 months. You wouldn't doubt there'll be a couple more with the way this team are hardwired. But yeah, India do need to keep winning to make sure, at home that is, to make sure they stay towards the top mm. of that, that table and, and get to play in the final again. So that that's not for nothing. But as for England, that Stokes stat does really stand out that out of the 19 test matches he's been captain for full-time, they've won 14. You know, 14 out of 19. You go through other 
England captain sort of noteworthy. You know, WG Grace, 8 of 13. Johnny Won't Hit Today, 8 of 18. Percy Chapman uh, from 28-29, 9 of 17. Jardine, 9 of 15. Peter May, 20 of 41. Uh, Ray Illingworth, so May and Illingworth both winning in Australia, 12 of 31. Brearley, 18 of 31. You know, Gower and Gooch in a, in a tough time for England cricket. Then through the 90s, Atherton, 13 of 54. Nasser, 17 of 45. And how much great work he did getting that side back on on their feet again. Mm. Michael Vaughan, who has the most wins as England captain before Joe Root, 26 of 51. Strauss, 24 of 50. Cook, 24 of 59. And Root, 27 of 64. So the win percentage is through the roof. But even the quantum is right up there as well. It's It has fundamentally changed everything, baseball. I mean, you occasionally see online criticism saying, well, other sides have played aggressively before. There is a precedent for mm-hmm. other sides playing aggressive cricket. And therefore, this is not new. This is new. And Ben Jones uh, did some analysis yesterday on this about the percentage of aggressive or attacking shots that England played right. uh, at Hyderabad. It was 56% of the balls they faced in this test match were played in an aggressive manner. That is by an absolute mile the most this century or the data they keep back to 2006 for test matches in India. All of the different analysis that was done on the first 12 months of the the Stokes-McCullum regime as well. This is different and that's okay. Like the fact that they're doing something differently and it's working for them, that's great. Uh, I don't know why that's such a problem for some people. Uh, Look, I think what they're doing is great. I think think the thing that pisses people off is is how much they pat themselves on the back for it and how much – how self-referential it is Um, and and the whole we're saving test cricket narrative is is so cringeworthy in just how overinflated the sense of self-importance is. There was a fucking great test match played at Brisbane and it didn't involve anybody saying that they were going to save test cricket by doing things differently and it just involved people playing really good test cricket. You can do that too. You can play great test matches in whatever way you want to do it. You can do things completely differently. You can play like Usman Khawaja did in that first innings at Brisbane when Australia were falling apart and he kept them in the game. You can play like Shamar Joseph did. I mean, he he was going at nearly six and over through his spell and, and picking up wickets, but that wasn't given a moniker of being a new and different way of playing cricket. It's just what happened in that innings. So that's the part that gets up people's noses, I think, and I understand why that is. Um, the thing that's going to save Test cricket, if you want to talk about saving it, is the richest countries taking a more proactive approach to helping spread the wealth and, and keep things working across the board. It's not going to come down to whether England did or did not play an entertaining match or not. Of course, it, it, that is true about the structural imbalances. But I do think it's sniffy, this idea that, oh, well, because England are trying to do something differently and trying to make the game very watchable and and and, and turn themselves into a side that is just utterly compelling. And they are. Everyone's talking about yeah. them and focusing on them. That is, by virtue of its existence, a good thing. And, you know, there's this idea that the self-referential point you make there, the idea that they've somehow bestowed this tag upon themselves and therefore, I mean, that's not, that, that's not true either. That, that is a, a media confection and a good one, right? That's what we're paid to do a lot of the time is to generate interest in the game that we're watching. That, that's more, probably more of fact in England than Australia, to be fair, where, where in England mm. there is a sense that you're trying to fight for column inches more than, than might be the case in Australia where it's a more culturally a, a bigger part of the, the conversation minute to minute similarly in India. But still, like this is captured the imagination and that is like good i saw yesterday a, a, like a well-intentioned but thoroughly inaccurate post saying that well actually matthew mott started doing baseball before they did um that it was matthew mott and meg lanning i'm like well okay i get that the 
Australian women's side have played an aggressive brand of cricket as well, but that's in short form cricket, which England were doing mm. as well, concurrent to that in the lead up to the 2019 World Cup. Sides playing yeah. aggressively and with freedom in white ball cricket is a relatively normal thing. What's happening in test cricket with this side is a, is a very unusual thing, an extremely unusual thing that's borne out by the stats. And I, and I don't think that it should be that it's a pinata to whack it at. We, we spoke about it on the, on the Daily Show the other day with Cam. It's that every day they have a bad day. It's like, Bazball is dead. This is, a, this is all a confected mm-hmm. lie and so on. Well, you know, the, the results speak for themselves. It is fascinating. And I don't think it should be now. It's like there's, there's this weird enjoyment being taken in this when it doesn't work. Well, when it does work, mm. I, I don't think it means we need to it, – it's not about Australia, right? Like we're often critical of Indian fans making everything about India. This is actually not about Australia, and I think we could take a backseat on this one. Sure. Um, I mean, the Matthew Mott thing is nonsense. Matthew Mott and Meg Lanning masterminded one of the dullest killings of a test match that we've ever seen in in 2019 at Taunton, where they had absolutely no inclination to even try to give themselves a path to victory in just dully blocking out a draw there. So no, that's not true. But it's not a confection that Ben Stokes did pull out the saving test cricket line. Those are his words. That no, wasn't yeah, something sure. that anybody that, could McCullum as well. McCullum as well. Um, I don't want to, I don't, I'm, McCullum, I'm not challenging that. that. They've said they want to play in a way that will help re-energise test cricket. And, and like they are. Hmm. Like they are. Shamar Joseph did as well. Yes. It's not an either or. Both things did do amazing. They, they generated amazing attention. But the, the England side's doing it like on a weekly basis. Like every test they play in is box office, must see TV right now. And that's like mm-hmm. good for the game. The fact sure. that it's England's neither here nor there. Yes, um, the the doing of it is one thing. The talking about it is another thing. I reckon, and and something like the the doing of it is what played out with you know. I mean, the Tom Hartley thing's incredible. The the way that he he gets picked out of nowhere, comes in, gets belted around, gets absolutely murdered in his first four overs, and then ends up being the match winner. And that you know, surely a lot of that has to come down to the captaincy. That if you had a different captain yep. of that team, if 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 almost anybody else in history is captaining that side after four overs, Tom Hartley's probably he's not off. winning that test match. Yep. But you know, he's probably not getting another bowl in the game. But it's the way that um, the way that he was treated, the way, the way that he was looked after from that point that allowed him to get back into the game and allowed him to ultimately decide it. So those are the good news stories. Um, but they're just they're just not the ones that have to be talked up beforehand. I, I, I don't know who it was. It might have been might have been Neil Manthorpe who wrote that the captaincy of Hartley was just the best that he's seen as far as Stokes enabling him to do what he needed to do in that game for England. And there was a nice story that Tim Wigmore had in the Telegraph today about Hartley's family running a garden centre and Tom working in there part-time, you know, as he's playing cricket for Lancashire. And his dad saying, I don't think he'll be dealing with the hanging baskets anymore. He's got this <laughs> this whole story ahead of him now. So, yeah, and that's a big part of the, the Stokes success. And Stokes has been a divisive character and we've written and talked about a lot with him. But yeah, his record as test captain, it's, it's, um, it's a staggering one. Also the talent ID thing, Tom Brown, who we've had on the show last year from the South Asian Cricket Academy, um, was tweeting about this, that they've picked Hartley because they see a profile of a cricketer who they think will work in that situation. So like almost divorcing that from your results in first-class cricket, like they've got this mm. process that they go through and it's a triumph for that as well. It doesn't always work, uh, but you know they've identified someone as a left-arm spinner, tick, tall, tick, bowls into the pitch, tick. And they're like, well, those three things combined in India, I suppose using the Akshar Patel model, is what they wanted and what they've got. And it's a point of difference. And yeah, it's a, a thrilling thing for, for I guess, the, the development for him through Lanks and through his club that they've now got a guy who's taken a seven for on test debut. It's barely, it's barely believable. 
and they've got a they've got Ollie Pope with one of those innings attached to him now that will follow him around for the rest of his career. You know, the, the, to be able to turn that game around in the third innings um, to to make one ninety six to, to get bowled for one hundred and ninety six trying to play a reverse scoop shot. Um, yeah. You know, all of it, all of it plays in together. All of it fits the the, the overall story, and um, yeah, it, it was pleasing. He was someone who I thought you know might have a, a big Ashes series. He's, he's got so much talent, and then he ends up getting injured and, and missing most of that series in the end, and, and looks pretty ropey before he did do his shoulder as well. But um, but this you know this will be the the top of the mountain for him probably for the rest of his life. It's like that nerd pledge thing, right? Like we have certain players with numbers when we do our story time shows that are just linked forever, like Ollie Pope 196, mm. owing to the circumstances of the comeback and so on. That'll that'll live on. Uh, that'll, that'll, that'll continue to live on. The only other annoyance in terms of the, the follow-up, I reckon, is that we're back into moral ashes space somehow on the basis of the Ben Folk stumping that wasn't of Jasbit Boomerah at the end. Like as I put on Twitter yesterday, that was a really fun thing about last year's ashes. It was like this, this piss take that we were all in on, whether you were following Australia or mm-hmm. England or you didn't have a, a, a dog in the fight, everyone understood that that was just a funny, absurd, preposterous thing. And now eight or nine months later, people very earnestly talking about the the, mor- the moral victory of that test would have been India. I'm like, come on, for fuck's sake, mm. this is this was shitposting, which has got way, way out of hand. And I saw a, a yep. ridiculous piece in, in um, on the, one of the clickbait websites yesterday, which annoyingly quoted one of my tweets because I'm like, no, no, misunderstanding what I'm saying. The reason I'm tweeting about it uh, having potentially been a spirit of cricket meltdown is, again, shitposting because it would have been funny. It had nothing to do with, mm. you know, the, the absurdity of the Bear Stoke area incident that people cannot just let go. Yes. Um, yeah, shitposting should not be allowed out into the real world. Um, it, <laughs> it, 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 it is to stay on the websites. That's yes. the only place it's supposed to be. The Australian test team, well, I say the test team have a bit of a break. There aren't that many players having a break, but um, they'll they'll go to New Zealand at the end of February, base and reserve. They've sold out the first four yeah. days, um, which is interesting. So we'll be looking forward to get over there. And in the meantime, we've got T20s and, and one-dayers with some of the test players involved. Uh, with that West Indies series. Yeah, I think this is great news for New Zealand cricket that they've been able to it, – it goes to how infrequently Australia visit for test matches. There's a scarcity thing, but first four days sold out of a test match is a big deal. So, um, yeah, we'll be making daily programs um, there and at Hagley Oval as well. The two test matches starting, I think it's the 29th of February. So, yeah, about a month between test engagements for Australia. So the T20s – the squad was named uh, captaining, and that is Mitchell Marsh, of course, because he's been doing the job mostly of late. Uh, a lot of attention on Glenn Maxwell being there, having been sort of awkwardly rested from the one day as, as the story was breaking about what happened with him um, on the piss a few days before. And um, I know you and Brad have already talked about that, so we're not going to go back over that now. But, you know, the fact that Maxwell was there, I think, was just important to draw a line under that. And the, you know, the one-day squad's interesting, you know, like – they should be changing things up. I know there's a Champions Trophy next year, but like, are Australia really thinking about the Champions Trophy when constructing their one-day team right now? They're thinking about their World Cup. Defense. Is anyone? Yeah, and look, maybe we will closer to it, but it's really about getting a side ready for the tournament three and a half years from now. So, you know, Xavier Butler getting his first crack. Fraser McGurk getting his first crack as well. You know, Steve Smith leading the side. Will he be there in four years? Probably not. So that's a bit of a quirk or a bit of a wrinkle in in what I was saying before. But Matt Short, who's, you know, captain of the BBL team of the year, he's in that side. Aaron Hardy's in that side. Lance Morris will play his first games for Australia. Nathan Ellis, who's a very classy death bowler, gets an opportunity in the absence of the big three 
who are all resting. So that one-day series begins at Melbourne on Friday, moves to Sydney on Sunday and Canberra on Tuesday, followed by the three T20s. So they'll be off Broadway. No one will attend them. They won't get. They won't do well through the through the gates. But you know, if for those who are interested in seeing how Australia start to regroup after the World Cup, this will be the first chance for that. And Marcus Stoinis, who is in the T20 side but not in the One Day side, um, which you know you you would guess that implies that they've they're moving on from him permanently, although nothing's been said in that regard, although that kind of cricket, you, there's always a chance you can find your way back in. He was pretty good on this, Stoinis. He's like, yeah, you know, may not play one day cricket again. He, he kind of knows because he's savvy enough to realise that, uh, you know, these things tend to work in four-year cycles and he didn't have a great World Cup, got left out of that side at the end, didn't play in the final. So he's not in the starting 11, not in the squad now. And he's mm. just re-signed with the Stars on a long-term deal. So there's no suggestion that he'll retire. But yeah, it feels increasingly like Stoinis is... Um, career will be more as a specialist T20 player and I don't know he's what 35 I think from memory he's a bit older than we think he arrived a bit later than than the average bear so um, we wish him well all right before we get to the break let's play a little bit of nerd pledge the game that we play with nice people on the internet who fund this program by sending in contributions those contributions come in very specific denominations of whatever currency they choose because the number relates to cricket in some way and we have to figure out what the number means today's nerd pledger is joshua timmons Ah. first time caller Two pounds seventy six. It's a British pledge, so the number is two seven six. The decimal point can go anywhere, and it comes with a clue. Yes, and Josh Timmons is running the Edinburgh Half Marathon. I should say, by the is way, he- it might be the ten k. Okay. He's, he's running the ten k with his with his partner. So they've signed up in the last week, and they've been training, doing their park runs and that kind of thing. So great to have you with us here as well, Josh. Uh, the clue is: this third choicer turned his hand to the law. A player I have a strange obsession with, Jeff. Third choicer, law. First thought here was Zafar Ansari, and I think this works out. So Zafar Ansari played three tests for England in 2016, yep. 15 and 16? 16, 17, yep. 16, 17. I'll come, I think they were all in 2016. I reckon he was done by, by the time 2017 came around, maybe. Anyway, point is this. Came through the, uh, the Surrey system after playing at Cambridge where he did study law. Left arm orthodox bowler. More of a batter, really, particularly at, at university level and, and first class level. But he, he worked on his other string at university so much that he started getting picked uh, in the county 19s and so on on the basis of being an all-rounder rather than just being a batter. Doesn't end up with like world beating career numbers. He's got a first class batting average of 29 and bowling of 35. So in the sort of useful category rather than the world beating category in both departments. But there was a lot of potential and and England were very interested in him. He just wasn't completely interested in cricket. He, He liked playing cricket, but he also liked doing other stuff as well. The description of him as a third choicer, I would say, is because. Late 2015, he gets picked in a UAE squad um, or the squad to go to the UAE to play Pakistan behind Moen Ali and Adil Rashid, who will be the two main spinners. He's picked as the third who may or may not play, but he breaks his thumb while he's fielding in a county game and, and can't make the tour and he gets replaced by Summit Patel. And then in 2016, he does get a test cap 
because he goes to Bangladesh. He, he's now the fourth choicer, so he's behind Moeen, Adol Rashid, and Gareth Batty, Gareth Batty who yeah. was his captain at Surrey. Um, and Gareth Batty, who played so little test cricket and, and probably could have played a, a fair bit more, who was a very decent player, but played for such a long period of time and, and got that got that late hurrah, right, Adam? Like he, he gets picked in that on that test too, very, very late in his career. Yeah, so 12 years after he made his test debut against Lara at, a, at Antigua as mm. part of the, the 400 not out. So he was you know, playing all the way back then and um, after an excellent 2016 campaign for Surrey, I remember he won a game down at Hampshire at the last minute and they decided to give him another crack as, the, I guess, the senior pro on that trip. And, uh, yeah, mm. I think it's a nice thing that he that he rounded out his long and interesting career with a, a second crack at Test Cricket and, yeah, Zaffa on the way through. There's an interesting story about Zaffa on that trip. Daniel Norcross tells that he's never seen a cricketer um, sitting in the lobby of a hotel reading the Times Literary Supplement, which kind of sums up <laughs> Zaff as a as a personality. So the test that Gareth Batty plays, Zaffa doesn't play the first test and England win it narrowly by 22 runs. And, and Gareth Batty bowls decently, takes a few, uh, but they want to give Zaffa Ansari a taste of test cricket. So they leave out Batty for the second test and they play Zaffa Ansari and they lose that one to Bangladesh quite heavily. You remember that? I remember watching that series at the time. Alistair Cook yeah. was captaining, and they just just got home in the in the first test, and then lost the second one by a hundred plus runs. It was brilliant. They got um, bowled out. He, they got bowled out in, in one session. They got they lost all ten wickets. Mm. It was, um, you know, I said before that England are an incredibly watchable team at the moment, and we should like not get too sniffy about that. Well, they were watchable then for a different reason. They kept they had this habit of losing all ten mm. in one session. It happened like five times in three years. So yeah, <laughs> uh, but this was the start of the sequence, I think. Yeah, well, well, he he was part of that. Um, he barely bowled in the first innings when Bangladesh were out pretty cheaply. He gets Tamim Iqbal and Mamadullah in the second innings, a couple of decent wickets there, and then England collapse batting last. They're chasing two seventy three. Zafar makes a duck, and then November twenty sixteen, just shortly afterwards, onto India. He plays the first two tests at Rajkot and uh, Vishakhapatnam. They draw the first one of those. He gets a couple of wickets but um, can't really contribute to bowling out India. On the last day, he gets Ashwin out but doesn't take another wicket as they're trying to, to bowl out India who hang on for a draw. And then the second test, he makes four and naught with the bat, takes none for in the first innings and doesn't bowl in the second. Um, another England collapse batting last and they lose heavily. So he's left out after that. But I think the, the idea is there that he might play more. And then a few months later, sort of at the very start of the 2017 English season, he says, I'm done. I'm going to go and practice law um, at the age of 25 and, and not bother with this cricket caper in, anymore. So three test caps to his name, a good chunk of county cricket and first-class cricket as well, but just decided it wasn't for him. Uh, the number was 276 because that was his test best bowling. He also took a, a two for 77. But, yeah, the the, the stories, I, uh, I was chatting to Steve Finn about him during the World Cup as well, and he said similar things of Zafra sitting there in the dressing room reading, you know, uh, read, reading books about philosophy or whatever it was, and then other players being like, Oh, what are you reading? Oh, what are you reading for? And everyone else is playing golf on their PlayStations or whatever and, you know, on the Xbox. And uh, no, nobody else, let's just say there weren't a lot of shared interests between him and, and the rest of them, the way they uh, chose to structure their lives at the time. And he has stayed peripherally involved in the game. He, he was the, uh, I, I think he was the primary author of the ICEC uh, report last year, which had such a big effect on the the national cricket conversation over here. So he's not completely removed from it. I think he's got some formal title at Surrey as well. But, yeah, it's a bit of an oldie-worldie story, isn't it, where he played a bit of international cricket and thought it wasn't for him. Like we, we, we're making story time here of players like that 
occasionally who put their professional interests first. And yeah, that was the the case for Zaf, who's a yeah fascinating guy. I think he um, he he did something else at uni as well. I feel like he did like chemical engineering or something as well. He had like an extraordinary double degree, but yeah, mega brain and um, short career, but an interesting one. That is Nerd Pledge. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, go to patron.com slash the final word. Uh, you can join up with all the people who are supporting the show and become part of our very nice community of people there. And uh, you'll, you'll hear about them when we talk about the game we played in Sydney after the break. Yes, and before going to that break, uh, as always throughout the course of the Southern Summer, we're being supported wonderfully by Seabus Super, established in 1984, as was I, as was Rach, uh, who enjoyed her 40th birthday the other week. Well, Seabus throughout the course of this year are as well created for workers uh, and by workers for workers, I suppose you would say. And a big part of that story, Jeff, is their competitive fees. So you only charge the admin and investment fees needed to manage your account. Um, to benefit members, there's that test that every dollar spent from the organisation needs to meet to its trustees, which are made up of employee representatives, employer representatives. This is a, a sophisticated process and having fees kept low means that all profits go to members and not shareholders, which makes it different from a, a retail fund. That's where industry funds have their point of difference that they have to meet this test and competitive mm-hmm. fees are a huge part of that. So cbusuper.com.au, get your super sorted out with them. Their extraordinary past performance is no uh, reliable indicator a future performance, but it is pretty impressive. 8.99% across the 40 years they've been in operation in their default brackets, my super account on average. And yes, they are with us and we are with them. Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. It's the final word, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. A, a quick note for NordVPN as well. A lot of people have been signing up for the discount that you can get with NordVPN through us if you want a virtual private network to protect yourself online. It's very easy to use. It's the one that, that I have and I can tell you that it's one click connect. That's true. Um, you just pick whatever country you want to be in. Yesterday, I was in Albania. Why not? I just thought I'd, I'd check it out and see what it was like being in Albania. The Google search results were very interesting. I can tell you that much. You can also automate it so you can get zero click protection. It'll just connect automatically to whatever server you've set it up to. Over 6,000 servers in 61 countries. Wow. Very fast speed, one of the fastest VPNs on the market. Um, and you can use one account on up to six devices across every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Linux, Android TV, doesn't matter. You can also install it on your router if you want to secure every device on your network. So it's versatile and uh, it comes with a big discount. I used it when I was in Paris a couple of weeks ago. We will use it when we're in New Zealand in a couple of weeks from now. Uh, you can get a massive discount through us, four months free, four months free, massive discount. If you sign up to the two-year deal, for NordVPN, nordvpn.com slash TFW, and you are away. All right, the cricket rolls on. Uh, interesting that on the same day as those excellent test results came in, South Africa's women beat Australia in a match, any match, any format, any kind, for the first time, which I sort of, I mean, I kind of knew that in the back of my mind, but it was still surprising that they've never managed to knock off Australia in any format, even in T20 cricket. It was a T20. They're playing the third match of the T20 series as we're speaking Mm. right now. In fact, in the third game, um, South Africa, have they made a good score, 162 for seven, and Australia might be running it down. They've got four overs to go and they need about, they need 36 and 24 balls. So maybe we'll, we'll get a grandstand finish while we're talking about this. But... The first game of this series, Adam, usual Australian thumping, 
ran down a target with only two wickets down. Beth Mooney, 72 from 57, and Elisa Healy hit the gas pedal at the start, 46 off 28. And so Talia McGraw, while not very fluent, was able to just cruise along and make 24 slowly. Only two wickets to fall, chasing 148. Um, but then... South Africa turned around and, and took them down in the next one. Yeah, and I'm glad it's with their bowlers. Like we spent so much time over the years saying that it, it's South Africa's seam group who one day could win them, you know, maybe a tournament. And they nearly did. You know, they nearly won that World Cup final against Australia last year in this form of the game. They've made a couple of 50 over semifinals. They, of course, performed so admirably in the 2020 um, tournament of the T20 format um, when they nearly beat Australia in, in the semi. But yeah, it's, it's bowlers like Marazan Kapp, who continues to be the gold standard for seam bowlers around the world, Mazabata Class, Nadine de Klerk, players that we sort of track the career of and, and feel like we're invested in them doing well. But coming together all in this game, they all went for less than six and over, which meant they contained Australia suitably and then their, their batters did the rest. Yeah, I mean, it was really, it was Grace Harris got away in that game, 31 not out from 18 balls and took down the last over that Kaka bowled. But yeah, Mlaba, Chloe Tryon, they, they all, all wanted to run a ball or less and kept Australia to 142. And then Tasman Brits, who mm. who often struggles to get moving. So she made 59 not out in the first game, but at just over a run a ball. She, she often... She struggles to get that strike rate above, you know, 105, 110. But she got moving in this game 41 from 28 balls and and that helped them get underway. And then Laura Volvart basically saw them through with 58 not out. Um, a few drop catches. There were a couple of court and bowls that went down and, and Grace Harris had one long on where if she'd been a, a metre back, she only had about a metre to play with on the rope, but she might have, if she'd had her heels on the rope, been able to hang on to it. But uh, So there were a, a couple of chances in there, but... At four wickets down, they did it relatively comfortably in the end, South Africa. And, yeah, like I said, batted well. against Again, today I was watching um, that first innings before we started recording and, and Marazan Cup was absolutely belting them. I thought she was on for a ton at one point. She got to 71 off about 40 balls mm. and then just slowed down. A wicket fell at the other end and a couple of singles and, and there were just a slow couple of overs and she ends up getting bowled by the Talia McGrath slower ball for 75. Um, they managed to sort of take the pace out of her innings by not bowling bowling to her for a period of time. So anyway, she's she's set them a decent score, but um, Australia have Gardner and Mooney at the crease, both absolutely motoring at this point. So it looks like they're on to win it at this stage. Also worth acknowledging that this is, you know, this is Laura Wolvart's team now. Uh, all the off-field drama last year with uh, what you would say premature retirements from Shabman Ismail and Deneva Nikirk, which mm. is more complicated yet further. But And then the captaincy, moving two or three times in the space of a year and landing with Laura Bulva, who you wouldn't have said, well, she's a senior player in the side on the basis that she's been there since she was 16, but still in her early 20s. But she has a chance to mould this in her image and they need that kind of stability, having had a fantastic captain in Van Niekerk leave the building entirely. So the fact that she saw them through with 58 not out in that second game and uh, I know she fell cheaply in this one, but, uh, you know, yeah, this is interesting and a lot of cricket to come because it's a multi-format series and there'll be the test match at Perth uh, in a couple of weeks from now, which we won't be at, I don't think. Or are we out there before? I'm trying to remember. How does that work with the sequence with, with New Zealand? Might be before the New Zealand test, right? Must yeah, be. it's a it's a while. It's about a week before. It ends about a week before the New Zealand test. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm flirting with the possibility of, of being there, but I may also be um, getting kicked out of my house around that time and having to move house. So if that happens, we're, we're waiting on, on final confirmation of dates. 
Thus, there's a little insight into what's going behind on behind the, the scenes. If I can be there, I'll be there. If life intervenes, I won't. We will try and do daily shows from there if we can. Um, tyranny of distance. Definitely be me. doing daily. So I'll, I'll do the daily by hook or by crook, but right, it's okay. just whether I can actually get over there. Terrific. Jeff, uh, you did uh, jump on a plane and fly to Sydney last week for your game at Birchgrove, now an annual affair, the third time the final word has played the Newtown Browns and the third time that we've won it. So we're not undefeated anymore, having lost in Melbourne mm. in December, but I guess north of the Murray and, well, yeah, north of the Murray full stop, never lost in England. And and, um, and uh, it's a little bit like that thing with Ollie Pope's batting average um, south of the Thames versus north of the Thames. Anyway, and uh, yeah, tell us about, why don't you tell us about the game in 30 seconds? Well, the, so the only the only consistent factor is that the the only game when you and I have both been there we've lost. So I don't All know right. if that means anything. But uh, <laughs> okay, um, no should. I, I can't I can't do it in thirty seconds. Okay, it, it was it was an it was an absolute belter. It was a it it ended up being a two run result. I mean Peter Lewis and the Newtown Browns are, were a, a team of gentlemen um, who who play in the right spirit, as they say. It was a bloody hot day. We won the toss and um, asked them to bowl first, which was probably a bit rude to do given that it was, you know, very humid and 35 degrees. Um, it wasn't a final word 11. We, we had 17 players available that day, uh, 13 batted and 15 bowled across the, the course of the innings. So we, we sort of rejigged the innings in consultation with Pete Lewis on the fly. So it ended up being a 34-over innings, which meant that we got all of our players a hit for at least a couple of overs, retired quite a few of them, uh, Rahman, our wicketkeeper at the top of the order, retiring. John O'Halen made 24. The retirement score was 25, and then he got bowled having a big heave when he was when he was one day away from retirement. <laughs> Very nice to see John O batting with Louis, his son, in the middle order as well. So that, that was nice to get them together for a hit. And then some terrific played down the order. Uh, so our scorer, Sarah Berman, came off the bench um, and came into the middle for a bat, um, had to be retired because she was she, no one could get her out. Jeff Quinn made a quick 20-odd down the order. Terry Hogan was running like Dean Jones, turning blind, hustling back for the seconds. Andy Casely as well came in and batted at 13 and made a hit a couple of crucial um, shots, including like a, a, an uppercut off the last over of the game somehow. And he was like, I've never played cricket before um, I, in any competitive sense and yet pretty much played the shot of the day. So we made 174 in our 34 overs. Um, they had 34 overs as well with, I think, 12 players, but then they had injuries happening. So we, we were going to have players batting twice if it came to that. They didn't lose enough wickets for that to happen in the end. And, you know, we were feeling pretty good at, at about 20 overs in until a fellow came in whose nickname was Maxie and that, that should have been a clue um, because he absolutely got onto us and, and just started clattering the ball around Birchgrove. Uh, and and he was hitting our best bowlers as well. That was the thing, you know. I've I've, I've got I've got bowlers that I, I know are a go to, and he was finding ways to find the boundary off them. Two, there was a big partnership in the middle order, and this was this was after there'd been some very frugal spin bowling as well. So Sarah Berman had a bowl, Helen Maynard Casely had a bowl. So the, the first women to play for final word teams, which was a nice development to have. Both should have had a wicket, but they unfortunately a couple of catches went down. They're, two of many catches that went down that day. I can tell you that much. And, and so that, that spinner's point through the middle was very frugal. And then the point where our better bowl, our, our more established bowlers were coming back on, they were getting carted. Um, and I was like, well, we're actually going to lose this. So four overs to go, Adam, 15 runs to defend, 24 balls in hand. I'm like, well, we're in trouble here. Steggs came on, our left arm orthodox spinner, bowled a beautiful over, only went for three, really, really held it up. But still, it was 12 needed off 18 balls. Surely, surely we were done for. And then 
salvation arrived in the form of Raman, who was keeping wicket. I said, get the gloves off. You're having a bowl. And he bowled a, a, a sensational outside off stump, fast swinging away. No one could lay bat on him. Went for one run off his over. Suddenly it was 11 off 12. Louis comes back on. He bowls a beauty, takes a wicket, gives away very few. They needed six off the last over though. And even then I thought I'll probably get them. And Raman just does it again. Couldn't lay bat on him. Got to the point where they needed five off the last ball. Had to try to smack a six down the ground. Couldn't do it. Um, and, and the final word gets home by two. So a, a thriller. We had a thriller in the first year we played. I think, I think, uh, I think the Browns needed nine off the last two overs then. And we managed to defend that. And this time, goodness me, it was, it was heart stopping stuff. Yeah. And two of the three years against the Oval Dream Boys have been final ball finishes when the first year they needed a boundary from the last ball and we restricted that. And last Last year, of course, the wild tie where we got two runs from the last ball to to square it against them. So there's a there's a theme emerging here. If you're mm. playing, with, how did you manage the um, the caps? Because I, I'm was there enough? Because I know we bought a, a box of them. Did we? Do we have to get some more? Almost. We we were a couple short because we had 17 players. Okay. Um, so we I think we got 30 all up, and I reckon we had 13 play in Melbourne and. 17 in Sydney, but a couple must have gone to somebody else. So I think we, I think we need a couple more of the baggy golds to fill up those who missed out. M- mine is sitting up on my shelf of the office here. My baggy blue um, final mm. word cap next to the baggy gold. So they'll they'll get work out. They'll get work again in 2024 for us because we're playing yep. the Dream Boys game. We haven't quite got in the diary yet, but we're just organising fixture lists at the moment and the. Edinburgh tour. I know we're talking a lot about Edinburgh at the moment. We'll get in a second in relation to the half marathon and the marathon, but um, the Edinburgh tour is happening as well. We've made a bit of progress on that. That'll be in the, probably the second week of August, and that'll probably mm. be four games. So, um, quite a bit of final word cricket this year. And one one particular mention for Keith Bannerman, who carries on the Bannerman name proudly. Oh, yeah. um, who you met at our Sydney yeah. live show? Who rocked up? So Sarah brought the frog box, so we could. Um, do a video stream of it. Keith brought not only you know, recording and broadcast kit to make sure that we could live stream the game, but also a couch and a generator and um, all of the equipment that we needed to do live commentary. So there was live commentary of the game on the speech channel on, on the Discord. So if you're on the Talkies channel, you could listen to uh, two or three or four people sitting on the couch doing live comms of the game as it happened and, and players swapping in and out of there doing post-innings interviews and so on. It was amazing how this, this this thing has grown. You know, we had spectators, we had tech, we had scorers, we had refreshments being run by Jono. It was, you know, it was a wonderful day and then there must have been 40 people down there for a social game rather than the usual bare minimum of struggling to get 22. Sounds like how the Big Bash started, Jeff, when Joey mm-hmm. Johns was walking out to bat for New South Wales and the Big Bash happened to finish this weekend. We, we kind of left it where you left it last week with two games to play, the, the preliminary final where mm-hmm. the Heat were playing the Strikers and then the, the winner of that to play the Sixers who won the second semi final. So in the prelim, the Heat win by 54 after making 214 mm. for seven. Josh Brown, what a story this oh. is. 140 <laughs> from 57 <laughs> man. with 12 Sixers. I've seen the, I've seen the highlights and I don't profess to have seen the whole thing, but the highlights looked absurd. So they win that game by 54 runs. Spencer Johnson takes three for 20. Then in the grand final at the SCG a few days later, he does it again. Brown, 53 from 38. Renshaw in support for the Heat and they get the job done comfortably over the Sixers who are bowled out for 112. And again, it's Spencer Johnson who's player of the match with four for 20. So it's the the mm. Brown and Johnson show. But let's just go back to Josh Brown, who you know he's a club cricketer. 
for, for northern suburbs in Brisbane grade cricket. He's been called into play for the Heat at age 30 and he's now signed uh, with Chattagram in the Bangladesh Premier League and who knows, that this could be, we, we've spoken a lot about fairy tale stories on the final word this week, not least Shamar Joseph. This might be another in a different way on different form of the game, but I suppose this is what the Big Bash does. It does, does give a platform for players to come from the clouds. Chattagram, he might be able to get Lisa some braces. Um, and, and look, maybe he's the next, I don't know, maybe he's he's Tim David Mark II, right? Yeah. Like he, the, the player that just grooves this one style of the game where you can just come in and belt the living shit out of the ball in short-form cricket and, you know, that can earn you a very good living these days. So there's the possibility. I was watching that, the 100 that he made. I mean, it was it was just brutal. It was it was a little reminiscent of who was it? was was it Craig Simmons the fellow's name yeah. who came in from grade cricket for the Scorchers. It was a bit like that. He 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 had a very straightforward way to play. Um, it was a way that it emanated the vibes of grade cricket. It suggested somebody playing a T twenty at a local oval, which isn't to say that there wasn't skill in the shots. It wasn't it wasn't agricultural. It wasn't just having a wild mow, but it was a basic range of shots and shots played in, in a basic way. It was like there's there's no need to get too fancy with with finesse and technique here. We're just here to hit the ball out of the ground. And by God it worked in that game. It was it was quite the thing to watch. So in terms of the, the team of the season, the only player no, there are a couple of them, my apologies, who the players who were giving unanimous billing were Matt Short, Aaron Hardy Jamie Overton, who was the overseas with the Strikers, and, and Xavier Bartlett, mm. who's now made his way into the Australian one-day side. Other players who were there of note. Chris Lynn, back to the peak of his powers with the Strikers after moving clubs. Jake Fraser-McGurk, who's now getting a one-day cap. Paul Walter, um, he's two, two metres tall, you might have heard that. Uh, Matt Kuhneman, who we saw a lot of in India last year, but can do it with the white ball too. Lance Morris, who is playing one day as next week. And Cameron Boyce, who's a good story. You know, Cameron Boyce, you and Brat spoke about last week, but mm. known for the 17 runs off one over back in 2015 at Cardiff when Mo and Ali got hold of him. But 19, um, I think it was. And there might there might be a, another, another chapter in his career. Time will tell. So in domestic cricket, we go back to the Sheffield Shield in about a week from now. I note that Will Pekofsky signed for Leicestershire, and talking of Shield players, He's going to be there um, through the month of April, replacing Vian Mulder, who presumably is on a holiday somewhere with Dana Scully. But yeah, Will Bukowski, um, uh, you know, getting his first chance to play county cricket, having been at Weybridge in the Surrey League comp last year. And, you know, he'll be the kind of player who people are watching pretty closely. You know, now we've had Warner's retirement and we don't really, I know, obviously, Usman Kawaj is not going anywhere soon, but I wouldn't rule out. I wouldn't. I wouldn't think it's impossible to conceive of Will Pekoski coming straight through the middle and being the next Australian opener and overtaking a bunch mm-hmm. of them because they've always had their eyes on him. And the one test that he did play all those years ago, he did look the part. So uh, he'll get his next chance for Victoria and then off to Grace Road. Well, the other question is, you know, cricketers get injured. That does tend to happen. If, if there's an injury in the middle order for Australia, does that mean Smith goes back down to the middle and they pick an opener or does that yep. mean they pick somebody to come in to the middle and keep Smith where he is? I suppose if it's Renshaw, it doesn't really matter because they can swap and switch around as they like. But, yeah, the um, you know, Pekowski getting hit the other um, last week playing that Vic's second 11 game, but mm-hmm. then sort of apparently coming through that okay without a yeah. concussion. You know, I mean, it was it was a it was a ugh story when it first came through. Um, the the assumption that he, he'd been concussed again, but apparently that wasn't the case. Well, there's clearly underlying anxiety for him around this when he copped a little whack last year when yeah. doing a warm up in Adelaide, and the story later came out that this was mostly his anxiety um, contributing to, and, and that's 
perfectly understandable given everything he's gone through. So, mm. yeah, playing it safe with Bukowski stands to reason. I think he was on 89 at the time as well. And, yeah, just on Smith, by the way, the fact that his name is now added to the list of players that have carried their bat in Test cricket, which is, what, that yeah. what 30 times, I think, in Test matches. And Smith, in his second match opening, goes straight on there. So another little bauble in his extraordinary career, even if the returns have been diminishing somewhat in the last few years. You know, I didn't see much of Smith's innings because much of it was when I was asleep on Sunday, but by all reports, it was um, in, in the circumstances pretty special. So uh, looking forward to seeing how he gets on in New Zealand. Yeah, it was, I mean, there, there was some special elements of that innings, um, I, I suppose, with the benefit of hindsight, giving Shamar Joseph two balls at the left-hander after what he'd already done to Travis yeah. Head and Alex Carey might not have been a smart move. So that might be one he wishes that he had again, but it, it's much easier to do that in hindsight. Uh, just as a live update, Australia have won the third T20 against South Africa's women. Beth Mooney, 82 of 55 balls, got out a couple of overs before the end, but Ash Gardner's taken them through. 29 of 17, absolutely put the foot to the floor at the end. Australia get there with four balls remaining and five wickets in hand. Uh, ICC awards were handed out this week, Jeff, which I don't normally pay an awful lot of attention to, but I think it's noteworthy that Pat Cummins is the, the first Australian since Smith in 2015 to win the Garfield Sobers Gong, which is kind of like the the award, right? It's the you know the best player in right. global cricket or something like that. Usman Khawaja won the best Test player. Cummins was also the captain of the ICC team of the year. Phoebe Litchfield won the Emerging Women Gong. Fantastic to see Chamari Atapatu, captain of the International Women's Team of the Year, Jeff. I mean, we've been Hell yeah. heavily invested in Chamari's story for a long time, interviewed her so many times, and finally being recognised on a in, in a wider context than just being kind of like the one player for Sri Lanka that can that can make mm. a match-winning contributions. Um, yeah, pretty cool. So the AB medal is on Wednesday night, which Cummins will absolutely win that. And on the women's side, it's yep. a bit of a Melbourne Cup field. I don't really know who'd be favourite. They're probably Ash Gardner because the extra weighting given to the test match and she took 12 yeah. wickets last year at Trent Bridge. You'd think she'd get so many points there that it would be hard to knock her off. Yeah, guaranteed to to pick up the points in the test match for sure. But they did play a lot of white ball cricket as well. I mean, she was she's in all formats, so that that gives you a, a boost as well. I, you know, Mooney's always somebody who lurks. Um, Litchfield's drawn headlines, but has really only made consistent runs in the last few outings that mm. she's had. So you know, I'm sure there'll be an eye on her, but but I don't think she'll be up there contending. So yeah, it could it could be raffled around this year. And I don't know, what's the the A B medal? It, it was I mean, the Alan Border bit is nice. It was nice to hear so Alan, Alan Border was doing mm. some commentary on the test match as well. It was good to hear him um, still out there. We know he's he's got health problems ahead of him particularly, you know, a condition that'll worsen over time. But it, it was great to hear him on the on the commentary, almost being interviewed more than commentating, really, um, yeah. talking about past battles with the West Indies and you know, it all sort of tally together. But, yeah, it's not it's not the most anticipated night of the year, is it, um, the Australian Cricket Awards? Yeah, I think it had more, more of a vibe to it when it was kind of like on Channel 9 at 8 o'clock in the evening and, you know, it's a different era, isn't it, when – it was like linear television and before streaming and so on. It had a bit of a brown low mm. energy around it, maybe for five years, but now it's a yeah, sort of one of those things that you 
you'll catch online the, the speech from the winner and that'll be largely yep. that. Jeff, we've got to take one more break and when we return from it, we've actually got quite a bit to wrap up, including the National Inclusivity Championships that were played during the week. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon mentioned going into the break that the National Inclusivity Championships were played uh, between the 20th and 20th and 25th of uh, January. This is a terrific initiative. So it started in 2017, and I'm really quite mindful we don't do enough on disability cricket on the pod, but we, we will try to the extent to which we can to stay on top of these things. But yeah, Victoria claimed the national titles in the men's deaf and hard of hearing tournaments, the women's deaf and hard of hearing and the cricketers with the intellectual disability division, while New South Wales won their fifth consecutive national title in the blind and low vision division. Um, the only thing I'd say about all of this, and it is terrific, is that where's the physical disability team? This is really starting to stand out now. And um, we had James mm. Norden and Will Flynn on the pod last year with us from the England side. They're in India right now playing an international series, yet there's no Australian presence whatsoever. So I, I do hope they can, you know, get on top of that soon because it doesn't – I don't know why. Why would there be infrastructure to have physical disability cricket not only being played in England, but they've, they've broken off into four sort of – elite teams, the, the winners of those two semis play in a final that's played on Sky Television and all of that. So they're, they're building something here. They're India, in India now, having had their tour from three years ago from COVID complications called off then. They're finally on the park. They lost their opening game, England to India, by 49 runs on Sunday at Modi Stadium, by the way. It's pretty cool, right? They're playing at the proper, you know, biggest stadiums in India for this five-game series. Mm. So um, I'll try and get Flinney and, and James back on the pod to talk about it after their return from India. But yeah, like I'm, I'm pleased to see there's far more attention on inclusivity when it comes to cricketers with disabilities. But yeah, the one thing missing from an Australian context is having a, a PD side out there and hopefully taking on England and India soon enough as well. It'd be good to direct the questions towards the people in charge of that part of the program to, to find out what is going on there. Like I, I doubt it's just a random oversight. There must be um, some practical reasons behind it, but hopefully that's something that does get addressed pretty soon. Will Flynn and, and James Norden are both very much linked up with the Lord's Taverners as well. And um, we, God, we've talked about running a lot. Um, I, I dread it. I hate thinking about running and talking about running makes me think about running, but there will be people running marathons and half of them at, at the end of May in Edinburgh and we are doing a big fundraising push for the Lord's Tav so they can continue to use cricket to make people's lives better. I mean, that's a, a thing that how can we not be on board with that, right? Because they're, yep. they're, they're looking to particularly to help kids who are disadvantaged or living with disability uh, to, to use cricket programs to help promote social inclusion, get kids who've got those issues more social time and, uh, and, and to help give them a brighter spot in their day that they might need. Just getting constant reminders of their great work as well. We went to the Burns Night dinner on Thursday. I went along with a, a couple of our marathon runners, including Hayley Fuller, who's organising all the fundraising for this year. So our target's £30,000. And yeah, that, that pub crawl that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago with Bumble, we're hopefully trying to nail down a date in May for that a couple of weeks before the uh, the run itself. So the, the 10K is on the 25th of May, the marathon and half marathon on the 26th. We're up to 42 runners, Jeff. It's been an amazing effort from the Final Word community. It's not too late. Get in touch, but it's nearly too late. Certainly on the marathon piece, it's almost too late. 
might even be too late to be honest. But get I in think, touch. I anyway. think it is. I think the marathon's yeah. closed. I think the forty two k is closed. But what we can do is there is flexibility when it comes to the half and absolutely the ten k. So look, if you're not a runner and you want to do this, the ten k is very gentle. Saturday morning, we'll all be there to watch. There's a a dinner plan for the Friday night, which will be great. The tabs are looking after that. Then we're doing a, a, a big brunch on the Sunday after the half marathon's finished and we'll go out and have a really good night on the Sunday night before returning to our various places, mostly London, on the Monday. So, yeah, be part of that. Get in touch with me straight away and you can contribute to hopefully a fundraising campaign that gets to roughly 30,000 quid for the Lord's Tabs. We couldn't be prouder to be in association with them. Under 19th World Cup, have you been paying much attention to this. I've, I've had a little glance. I've had a dabble, um, mm. but I can't claim to have been deeply across it. There's been a bit too much going on. Yeah, there is, isn't it? It's one of those tournaments where they keep the teams in as long as possible. So 16 has been reduced to 12. Then they go into two groups of the Super 6. So we're a long way from the finish line in, in practical terms. Just wanted to note that Clinton Peak Sun has been drafted in to the Australian squad. He's only 17. He's already made 1,100 runs for Geelong in club cricket this year. So um, coming to a Sheffield Shield side very mm-hmm. soon, young peak, I worked with, I guess it was his auntie back in <laughs> a long time ago now. But um, yes, he's um, they're, they're talking big things about peak from Geelong. So he's now been brought into the Aussie squad as injury replacement, something like that. So we might do a bit more on the 19s World Cup when they get to the, the business end. It head, headline writers dream as well, peak, you know, all of the reaching his peak, past his peak kind of stuff that yeah. that they can do. That'll keep them in business for years. I'm wondering <laughs> if there's any family connection to Mervyn Peak, the author of Gormenghast, one of the one of the greatest feats of imagination in the English language, Gormenghast. If you're looking for a book to read, um, check it out. No, so you, you probably won't be able to figure out how to spell it, but um, it just it's phonetic with with a gh in the second syllable, the second g. Anyway, you'll work it out. Mervyn Peak, check it out. Zaffa Ansari can read it along next when he's finished reading the full works of Camus or, or something like that. Speaking of cricket around the world, World Test Championship uh, tests between South Africa and New Zealand, which all rise are on that for you know the wrong reasons. Sadly, that yep. starts on Sunday at Mount Monganui. Afghanistan are playing a one-off test match against Sri Lanka in Colombo that begins, I think, three days from now. Unfortunately, Rashid Khan won't be part of that Afghanistan side. His back's still fucked from the World Cup. So he's uh, had an operation, hasn't he? I think Rashid Khan on his back. So he's just in rehabilitation mode at the moment. But it does open the door for Kais Ahmed. He'll make his test debut instead, which is exciting, putting to one side the um, the Afghanistan story that we've talked about in great depth before, the very fact that they're playing test cricket against Sri Lanka outside of that World Test Championship apparatus can only be a good thing. Well, it's, it's the way that things are set up at the moment with the WTC, isn't it? That The teams who are outside of it, if you want to play a game, if you want to play a couple of games, you've just got to work that out um, with each other. You know, you've got to you've got to figure out how to schedule it, how to fund it, where to put it on, and and it's not going to have any bearing on anything beyond that. But I suppose that's what Test cricket always was up until relatively recently. Yeah, I wonder whether there might be a world where I don't know where there's divisions of Test cricket. The more I've thought about this topic we were discussing before. You know, if it turns out that there is a group of nations who only really want to play each other for commercial reasons, whether there's room for something that sits beneath it, I don't know. There there probably isn't, but there might be. Uh, There might be. Um, So, yeah, anyway, that's that's a conversation for another time, I suppose. 
Okay, that's enough from us for this week, or at least for the weekly show this week. I'm sure there'll be other things this week because that is the way that we operate in the can't Lots. stop, won't stop atmosphere mm. of the final word. Uh, thanks to Adam for being on the show. Why not? It's his show. He might as well be. And thanks to me for being on it as well. Thanks to you for listening to it. Without those three components, the people on it and the people listening to it, there wouldn't be much point doing it. Remember, if you want to play Nerd Pledge, that is patron.com slash the final word, and you can also get get onto our Discord chat page and become part of the very friendly and nice Final Word online community and an offline community as well because uh, everybody's meeting up and hanging out and doing things like going to Edinburgh en masse at the end of May. Uh, all of the links about the marathon up there are in the show notes. Thanks to cbussuper.com.au if you want to sort out your superannuation. Um, and thanks to everybody else involved for sorting the show out week to week, especially DC who edits the show. We Sometimes we don't talk about DC and enough, but we, we would not be here without him. Quite right. We love you, DC. And uh, yes, the, those daily shows from Vizag, we'll, there'll be a preview on Thursday, then into it again with Cam at the ground with a combination of you and me this week. And on and on, it will roll before we are reunited in New Zealand in about a month from now. All right. This has been season 15, episode 22 of The Final Word. We will catch you again, as Jeff says, very soon. Later. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it.